Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome back to the November edition of the Heredity Podcast. I'm Jeff Marsh. This month, spotting the risk of adult illnesses through newborn screening and a very speedily evolving snail. Before I launch into our science stories this month, I'd like to make you aware of a couple of conferences taking place in 2013. In spring, the Genetics Society and the British Society for Human Genetics are joining forces to hold a meeting on genomics for health and society. There's going to be a really diverse group of experts at the meeting to discuss the potential for highly personalised medicine and the related legal and societal issues. And as if that wasn't enough, in autumn there'll be a two-day meeting called From Genes to Shape. So if you're intrigued about how the digital information in a linear piece of DNA leads to the dynamic shapes of cells and structures, this meeting aims to highlight unifying principles of the underlying mechanisms. For more information, please visit the Genetics Society website at www.genetics.org.uk forward slash events. So first up this week, it's time to talk snail evolution. Sapere nemoralis, aka the banded snail, is a common critter all over Europe, and it's widely used as a model system for evolutionary studies, but working out their evolutionary rates has been tricky. Menno Schiltzeisen, a researcher at the Naturalis Biodiversity Centre in Leiden in the Netherlands, made use of an area in the Netherlands called the Eiselmeer polders. These areas have recently been reclaimed from an estuary, having been drained in the mid-20th century. This allowed Menno to know how long the colonising fauna and flora could have possibly been there, and thus put a more exact rate on their evolution. And his results are impressive. Far from snail paste, the rate of its evolution rivals that of Darwin's famous finches. Here's Menno. The common name in English is the banded snail. It's a, it's a very well-known uh, land snail that has been used for evolutionary genetics studies since the mid-20th century. And the nice thing is that it has uh, genetic polymorphism in the shell color, which, which can range from yellow to brown via pink. And uh, it can have zero up to five black bands, spiral bands, uh, all of which both the color and the banding pattern is genetically determined. Right, so this color morphism then, why is it such a good trait system for studying contemporary examples of evolution? Well, first of all, because it's genetically relatively simple. Most aspects of the color polymorphism are coded by a single locus. And the same thing applies to the banding pattern. So when you have a, a snail of a particular color morph, you can pretty much tell its genotype or at least some possible genotypes of that individual simply by looking at the shell. Um, and the second reason is that um, we know quite a bit of the natural selection that's acting on these color morphs. 
How might shell coloration affect the snail's ecology? Well, there's, there's two main ways in which this can happen. One is predation by, uh, by birds, particularly by song thrushes, which hunt by eye. And some shell color morphs are better camouflaged than others in certain habitats. The other way is that during the, the height of summer, snails are prone to overheating. And we know from work done in the 1970s that the yellow morphs uh, have a higher albedo. They reflect more solar heat and they're less prone to overheating. Okay, so there's obviously multiple kind of evolutionary forces acting on these snails. Why don't you yeah. tell me about your seemingly quite impressive uh, sampling and, and, your, and your experimental setup? Well, the, the, what people have seen already in the middle of the 20th century is that the, the snails in uh, forests tend to be darker than uh, snails in open habitat in grasslands. So that's clearly selection. But of course, these habitats can be quite old. In, in many parts of, uh, of Western Europe, those forest habitats can, can go back many centuries. So it's been uh, a matter of contention whether those differences build up over, over long time periods or over short time periods. So I figured that, that one of the only ways to, to find this out in a, in a more controlled way is to use habitats that are newly formed, of which we know the age, and in Holland, we have, um, we're fortunate to have these uh, large areas of reclaimed land, um, which, were, which were built uh, and which were drained in various times in the 20th century. The oldest one is from 1930. Then there's one from 1942, one from 1957, one from 1968. And I figured that the, the snails living in forests and grasslands in those so-called polders, in these reclaimed areas, cannot be any older than the date that the, the polder was drained. Right, so before these polders were reclaimed, the area was completely covered in water and there was no way snails were living there. Yeah, it was, it was open sea, yeah. Uh, and so you're in this area, you've got these easy-to-collect samples and you've got this lovely kind of man-made natural experiment. Um, and then so you, you, you got these paired samples then between mm -hmm. shaded and unshaded environments uh, and yeah. you compared them. So what, what did you find? I found two patterns. I, I found sometimes very distinct differences where, uh, and I should mention that these, these uh, habitats were very close to each other, so they're usually about 200 meters apart. Um, so I would sample in the forest and then I would cross the road and I would sample in the grassland right next to it. There clearly was a sign that the shaded habitats had darker snails than the grasslands. And that, that was presumably what you were expecting? This is exactly what we were expecting because that had been found um, before. But of course, now we had the nice thing that we could see in which places we found stronger differences and, and less strong differences and whether that was related to the age of the, of the polder and the age of the habitat. So we looked at differences between these paired habitats and correlated them with, with the age that the polder was drained, but also the age that the forest habitat was formed because some of these forests were planted uh, immediately when the polder was drained and some of them had been planted much more recently and we could by looking at aerial photographs and old maps we could get an exact age on these forests uh, and in both cases regardless of whether we looked at the age that the polder was drained or the age of the habitat we saw that there was a uh, an increase in differentiation with an increase of age that 
means two things, namely that that differentiation can be measurable even when the habitat has been formed just just a decade earlier. Um, so evolutionary response is fast, but it also means that it's 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 still not uh, come to the to the neck to an equilibrium after 80 years because that's the oldest um, poll that we looked at. That's some very rapid evolution going on, and you measure that in units called Keeler Darwins. What what are they? Well, a Darwin actually is a measure for uh, evolutionary speed, basically, uh, where where one Darwin is a 2.7-fold change over a million years. So in this case, of course, we're looking, not looking at million years. We're looking at centuries at the most. So that's why we work with Kilo Darwin. So, so the rate in which these frequencies of the color morphs change from a population that originally was probably living in open habitat and then colonized these newly formed forests is uh, between 15 and 30 kilo Darwins. And that's roughly the same rate by which the, the Galapagos finches evolve, for example. Right. And is that rare then to have such speedy evolution? Um, it has been found before, but it's quite rare, I suppose, to find that it's consistently working in the same direction because these rapid changes that happen over short periods of time are often transient. They can go the other direction as well. And that has been seen in Darwin's finches, for example, where where a few bad years can cause an, an evolutionary change in bill shape, but then that change can be reverted if you have a few uh, years with a different climate again. Whereas in this case, it seems to be slowly progressing towards more and more darker snails in the forest and, and lighter colored snails in the grassland. And and so in terms of the uh, the explanation then, the ecological explanation, what kind of selection do you think was causing this rapid adaptive diversification? It's rather hard to say, but we don't find that the, the color morphs that are most famously associated with predation by birds, we don't find that those color morphs are the ones we see uh, differentiating. So it looks like it's more the result of thermal selection. And the theory behind the thermal selection is that if you're exposed to more sun, you want to have a brighter shell that reflects more light. Yeah, that that if you uh, if you have a dark shell, you're more prone to overheating and uh, yeah, and not surviving the heat of summer. That was Menno Schultzeisen of the Naturalist Biodiversity Centre in the Netherlands. Finally, this week I spoke to Kelly Rickman from the Department of Epidemiology at the University of Iowa, who's been working on the metabolic profiles of newborns. Screening newborn babies for specific genetic and metabolic markers is standard practice. It helps to identify neonatal diseases that can be very dangerous if left unnoticed. But perhaps the metabolic profiles of healthy babies contain useful clues about the genetic contributions to complex diseases, and perhaps even the risk of contracting these diseases in later life. Here's Kelly. We use metabolic profiles in newborns now as part of newborn screening to identify rare diseases. And in adults, there's been a lot of focus lately on identifying biomarkers of adult diseases such as cardiovascular disease, hypertension, type 2 diabetes. And so what we were looking at here is, is there a genetic component to what these profiles are at birth. So this will be in newborns that are born healthy. 
Right, so you're looking at metabolic biomarkers, but you want to know if there's a genetic component to those. How do you work that out? You can look at twin pairs, and you know that fraternal twins, so um, twins that are not identical, will share part of the profile, but you would expect that identical twins would have an even tighter correlation between their metabolic traits. And so you're looking essentially for the heritability of metabolic profiles. First of all, what are those uh, metabolites? What we looked at were the same metabolites that are on the panel for newborn screening. So there's a couple of main enzymes or hormones that they look at, including thyroid-stimulating hormone and um, immunoreactive trypsinogen, which is a big word, but it's a biomarker for cystic fibrosis. And then the other metabolites that we looked at came off of um, a platform called Tandem Mass Spectrometry, which gives you um, a lot of measurements for a wide range of amino acids and acylcarnitines. And previously, were these markers really based around spotting uh, diseases, in, in neonatal diseases, diseases of newborns? Yes, so the goal of this study is that we were looking at infants that presumably did not have these diseases, so they didn't have um, any flags for the um, rare diseases that the panel was testing for. All of their metabolites were within the normal range for what's considered um, normal on this panel, but we wanted to see if there were still differences between the mono between the identical and the fraternal twins. And so what we're really looking for is if these are heritable, then can we use these values at birth to identify genes that could be associated with these given um, metabolite levels? And that's important because we know that many of these biomarkers, like thyroid-stimulating hormone, are very important in adult disease. But, um, okay, so you're going to try and match these up with the same kind of metabolite data that you've got from adults with complex adult diseases. Yes, and so actually we, we've done another study that um, has just gotten published in pediatric research where we look at thyroid-stimulating hormone at birth, and we are looking for um, genetic mutations or genetic polymorphisms that are associated with that level at birth. And there's been many studies that have shown in adults, not in the neonatal period, but in adults, that there are um, these polymorphisms that are very associated with uh, higher or lower levels in adulthood. And we show that those same um, mutations or variation is associated with levels at birth. Why don't you just use genetic markers in the neonates? Right. So we do we do, do both. We do look at genetic um, markers of specific diseases, but you also have these intermediate phenotypes. So a lot of these diseases that we're talking about are very complex, and they're marked by certain levels of hormones or metabolites. We see that with cardiovascular disease that, you know, different lipid levels or cholesterol levels can... Um, predisposed to that disease. So these diseases are all made up 
of a very complex architecture, which includes measurements of these biomarkers. And in some cases, it, it's almost easier or or better to find a variant that's associated with a given biomarker or metabolite level than the disease itself. Okay. And um, what were the most exciting, uh, highly heritable markers that you found? Yes. Yeah, so we had two um, main findings that replicated studies that have been done in adults. One was thyroid-stimulating hormone. And I've mentioned earlier this is important because thyroid-stimulating hormone is involved in many adult diseases. It's also involved in in diseases in the neonatal period, but there's been a lot of focus on identifying um, genetic contributions to um, thyroid-stimulating hormone in adults, but very little looking at the newborn level. And so we found the same heritability or the same genetic contribution in the newborn period that are found um, with adult levels. And then the other finding was the short-chain acylcarnitine. So these these also we found the same um, associations that have been seen in adults where we found very high heritability in the newborn period. And that's interesting because you wouldn't expect that there would be environmental contributions that are changing these levels at birth. Um, You would in adulthood, but if we see the same high heritability in the newborn period, it means that there's really a strong genetic contribution. So what does this mean then for, say, a mother giving birth in, in, in a few years? What do you expect will change about the process? Do you think this will become standard practice? Um, so, no, I, I, I think that the process will be the same. So these um, levels, again, they're measured as part of a screening program and a very important one to detect uh, uh, diseases at birth that could um, cause significant problems in the neonates. So they're, they're trying to catch these early so the newborns can be treated before a severe disease manifests. And um, so I think that will stay the same. Okay. And so can you imagine then at some point in the future that not only does your newborn get this this screening for these complex neonatal diseases, but also gets a scorecard saying there's an increased risk that in later life this child will develop uh, type 2 diabetes, for example? Right. So that's a, a very hot topic of debate in um, in bioethics considering genetic uh, research. So when do you report findings and, and what kind of finding would you report? And I think we're really in the infancy of knowing what we would report for the risk of these complex diseases like type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease. There's so much that's unknown even as we de- identify these genetic variants that are associated with them that I don't see any time in the very near future where we would be reporting that to a mother um, at birth. But I do think that it's an issue of importance and it's one that's certainly taking the spotlight as of late for how you would report these findings or what findings that you should report. Kelly Rickman there from the University of Iowa. And that's it for this episode. Join us again in December for more Heredity Stories. Thanks for listening.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 